Welcome to Ocean Stories, a podcast hosted by me, Lydia Carey, and me, Sarah Hurstbing. We may not be marine experts or even professional scuba divers, but we are curious about the ocean and ways to protect it. Every week, we chat with conservationists, researchers, business owners, and anyone else with an ocean story to tell. So whether you're a scientist or someone who's simply curious about the big blue, you're in the right spot. We can't save the seas alone, but we can do it together. Hello, happy Tuesday. Welcome back to another episode of Ocean Stories. Tuesday. Happy Happy Valentine's (laughs) Day. Happy Fish Free February Day. This is the day you will enter. Um, Today we are talking to Simon Hilborn. He is the founder of Fish Free February, which is a movement that encourages people to eat less fish in February for environmental reasons, for all sorts of reasons relating to the ocean. So that's who we're talking to in today's episode. He knows a ton about the fishing industry, obviously, but he's also a manta researcher, an underwater videographer and filmmaker. He does a bunch of really cool ocean stuff. We wanted to get this to you as soon as possible because Fish Free February is obviously happening. We are halfway through but we definitely encourage everyone to join. It's gonna be a lot easier for you because you have an advantage of 13 days. So try to go fish free for the rest of the month. And if you're wondering, why should I do this? Listen to this episode. Listen, just listen. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Do you want to say who you are? Thank you very much for having me. Um, my name's Simon, and I'm the founder of uh, Fish Free February. Woo! Fish Free February. Hear that, people? That's right now. Okay, we are bringing you this episode as fast as we can because we want to talk about what's going on with Fish Free February. Thank you for joining us, Simon. Where in the world are you right now? Um, I'm actually currently over in Japan um, with work, doing some diving and stuff and um, filmmaking. Wow, that's cool. Oh, wow. There's diving everywhere in this world. Japan, like, I'm learning about new dive sites every episode. (laughs) Yeah. I mean... I I don't think Japan's on too many people's list, but there's a lot of really, really cool stuff here. A lot of sharks and and things. Um, They get schools of hammerhead sharks. They've got humpbacked whales. They've got ragged tooth sharks. They've got all sorts of small, weird um, sharks and rays and skates and stuff, because you get kind of quite cold water as well coming in with the tropical water and lots of deep water and stuff around the around japan so really really cool place to dive Damn, that's incredible. <clears throat> i hope i don't sound silly by saying this but is japan a difficult place to do fish free february because they're famous for sushi <laughs> and fish that was yeah. the first thing that popped into my mind it's definitely uh probably one of the hardest places it, it, well, I mean, I don't normally eat seafood anyway, so it's kind of a lot easier for me. But um, mm. yeah, I think for the normal person, if you're if you're traveling to Japan and you normally do eat seafood, I think maybe avoid February if you're trying to do fish food February. It's a lot harder. <laughs> yeah. I think they have one of the highest seafood consumptions per capita of the world. So um, it's breakfast, lunch, and dinner is is seafood here. Interesting. Well, well, can you explain? We we mentioned it a lot already. Can you explain to us 
what Fish Free February actually is and how you're involved with it. Sure. Um, yeah, it's definitely a bit of a tongue twister, the name, but that's kind of part of why I chose it as well, because it's um, kind of fun to say. Um, but basically, it started off as a campaign a few years ago um, that I kind of came up with because um, well, I've been traveling around Sri Lanka a little bit with work and working over in the Maldives um, studying manta rays. And then whilst over in Sri Lanka, I was going around fish markets um, just to see what was kind of going on. And I was really shocked by the number of um, sharks and rays being unloaded by the fishing boats. And when I kind of speaking to the fishermen and stuff like that, these were not shark fishing boats. They were tuna fishing boats and they were going out hunting or catching tuna um, with long lines or with gill nets. But they were catching a lot of... Um, sharks and rays and when I went to the fish market in the morning I saw I'd been diving for 10 or 12 years already and I saw more species of sharks on that fish market floor than I'd seen in 12 years of diving in one morning and it was kind of quite sobering and, and shocking to see that and, and very sad and what kind of really hit me was the fact that this was all coming from tuna fishing boats and the higher end tuna that was being caught and landed the fishermen were saying that it then gets exported to other areas of Asia, to Europe, over to America um, as kind of high grade tuna. And that got me thinking and was like, well, I have friends back home in Europe. Are any of them aware that the tuna that they might be eating could have come from this very fish market? And I'm staring at the sharks and rays that I love to dive with that have all been caught at the same time. I don't think anyone, any of my friends would have been aware of that back home. Um, so that was kind of one of the, um, driving factors and then also working with a lot of uh, conservationists and marine biologists and stuff a lot of them were still eating seafood and and it kind of and a lot of divers um go work on liverboards and stuff and they serve you go out diving all day and then you come back and they serve you fish for dinner it just seems a bit strange to me um and then there was also a lot of narrative around um the meat industry and how carbon emissions and deforestation and uh, land use and stuff and water use is all very detrimental to the environment. But there was very little talk about how the same situation is happening in the ocean. And in fact, a lot of people kind of switch from eating meat to eating seafood and the whole sort of pescatarian diet. And it kind of struck me as a bit weird that there wasn't as much talk about how, um, what we eat from the ocean is impacting the environment in the same way that what we eat from land is impacting the environment. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it all started. Uh, and it's basically a campaign to raise awareness about um, a variety of different topics in terms of how what we eat can have a detrimental impact on the oceans and uh, the health of the ocean. I love that you mentioned that people don't talk about it as much. I'm a vegetarian, and I do feel like a lot of the messaging to vegetarians is really about red meat because of the carbon emissions and all of that, which is also super important. But I love how you talked about nobody talks about the impacts of the fishing industry and how crazy they are. It is really, you don't see it as much in the media. I don't mean no one talks about it. Obviously, Fish Free February is talking about it. <laughs> yeah, and, and in the last couple of years, I mean, there's been things like seaspiracy popping up and uh, veganery also includes i feel like they're starting to include more about the ocean and, and seafood as well which is great um so we're definitely not the only people talking about it um but yeah there's definitely a lot more emphasis around terrestrial stuff and how 
primarily beef and is the worst CO2 emission in emitting food you can eat, um, how that has such higher um, impacts and stuff. But yeah, um, people swap over to seafood thinking that, oh, it's better for the environment and stuff. But eating seafood can also have huge detrimental impacts on, on the ocean as, as well. And that's kind of what we're trying to highlight. You mentioned the impacts of catching sharks by accident. Mm -hmm. Basically, what's going on is they're fishing for the tuna and they're accidentally catching a bunch of sharks and they are dying because obviously. What are some of the other negative impacts of the fishing industry? Yeah, the whole kind of um, premise around sort of catching sharks accidentally, that's termed bycatch. So anything that a, a fisherman is going out to specifically target, so if they're a tuna fishing boat, they'll go out to target tuna. Anything else that they catch is, is termed bycatch. Um, so that can be other species of uh, fish that they weren't kind of aiming for maybe they're not as valuable maybe they're not allowed to catch it whatever um they get caught in the net or on the hooks um but that can also be turtles it can be seabirds it can be dolphins it can be manta rays it can be sharks um it can also be stuff on the sea floor if it's a trawling vessel they have a lot of bycatch of bits of coral crabs all sorts of other benthic animals that live on the sea floor and that's all trawled up and collected all together um, so that's all, all bycatch and it's stuff that wasn't kind of targeted. Uh, sometimes that can be released into the water and it, and it survives. Sometimes it's already dead and then it's just thrown overboard. And sometimes it's kept because it does have an economic value. So with the sharks, in a lot of places, the sharks are kept because they can be sold and the fishermen can make money off of it. Um, whether that's for the meat or the shark fins or, or whatever, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, it's, it's kind of money for the fishermen. Um, so that's bycatch. So Fishery February um, hits the topic of, of bycatch. We talk about that quite a lot. Um, we talk about overfishing. So that's just the process of catching too many of one species that the population can't replenish fast enough to keep up with the extraction of, of fish from the fisheries. Um, and when we see that happening, we see the, the population of that species start to decline and, and crash. And that's happened all around the world with lots of different species. Um, Famous one in the UK is, is cod. Um, so, but yeah, it's happened all over the world. Um, but when regulation and, and protection comes in, maybe it's a closed season, maybe it's a ban on fishing for a certain area or a certain time, we do see those populations recover. So that's really promising. The ocean can bounce back. Um, and we see that the, those populations kind of start to, to recover. Um, we also hit on the topic of ghost gear or fishing, um, discarded fishing nets so pretty much all fishing gear is plastic and it's designed and built to a be as strong and and kind of last as long as possible and b to catch and kill animals that's the whole premise of a fishing gear is to is to kill these animals and to be able to bring them back on the boat um when these nets and lines and stuff get lost or get discarded or um or somehow kind of yeah, the fishermen lose them. Those fishing gear remain in the water because they're plastic, and because they're built to be quite strong. They last for a long time, but they carry on entangling and killing animals. So we see a lot of um, ghost gear, like ghost nets, entangling turtles and seabirds and stuff like that. And that fishing gear persists in the ocean for, for a long, long time. 
Um, then we, we touched on the topic of aquaculture as well. Um, sometimes people think that moving from kind of caught fish over to aquaculture, you're no longer kind of going out into the environment to catch your seafood. So you're catching it kind of from a, almost like a farm. Um, and that would be a lot better for the environment. But there are also a lot of issues with aquaculture. You're now keeping a lot of animals in a very small area. They can um, pass diseases and parasites between one another. Um, they, they take up a lot of nutrients and then they, they essentially poo and defecate and all the, it changes all the nutrient levels in the water around the, uh, the fish, the, the sea pens or the aquaculture farms. Um, and that can basically kill off anything in the environment. Um, a lot of these aquaculture areas are in mangrove areas. So then the mangroves are destroyed to build the, the fishing, um, uh, aquaculture pens. So there's lots of issues with aquaculture as well. Um, and then the last kind of main, main topic we, we try and touch on is the issue of modern day slavery, um, because a lot of seafood, well, in some countries around the world, um, a lot of fisheries, um, still have issues with modern day slavery. So, um, enslaving people on the fishing boats, uh, taking away passports and stuff, um, and making them, them fish for extremely long hours. It's hard work. Um, and yeah, kind of lots of humanitarian issues around that topic as well. So we kind of touch on that a little bit as well. Damn. So many things you just touched on. It's like so many questions in my head this morning. Actually, I saw this a TikTok of, um, whale sharks entangled in like a discarded fishing net and like two divers trying to get them out of there and it's just I mean that's just one of the million things you just said but it was really terrifying to watch that and it was just scary to see them like trapped in that fishing net I just had to think of that yeah. well yeah, yeah I was working I was working in the Maldives in a, in a resort and there was a turtle rehab center and these ghost nets would drift in across the Indian Ocean um, and these turtles would go and kind of rest in the nets and, and kind of seek shelter. Um, but then they'd get a bit entangled and then they would get stuck in these nets and they, they breathe air. So they're fine. They can kind of keep breathing, but they could have been entangled in that net for weeks or months. And then they, they get sort of blown into the Maldives and, and the rescue teams and stuff would have to quite often amputate flippers. Then the turtles are, they're too buoyant and they just float on the surface. And it was really sad to see. And these turtles were coming in week after week sometimes a few turtles every week and it's uh and that's just one tiny little country in the indian ocean so um to think about what's going on across the entire planet is quite scary yeah that's super scary so with your campaign can you explain a little bit more like how people can join or um i mean quite obvious to not eat fish in february but what are like other other things and other ways to join yeah fishery february is kind of it's a challenge um we challenge people to not eat seafood for the month of february um it's easy we pick the shortest month um so it shouldn't be too hard um and then so yeah there's kind of two aspects um on our website you can take the pledge to to i pledge to go fishery february um and we use that kind of as a tracker to see how the campaign is going um so try to avoid eating seafood for the month of february um, but then the other side of it is the awareness and education. So um, educating yourself, reading about these topics, learning about different stuff, um, but also educating each other. Talk to your friends, talk to your family, try and uh, spread awareness about some of these topics. Um, 
that's kind of the main thing. So yeah, if people are vegetarian or vegan or don't eat seafood already, they can still get involved in Fishery February and use February as a month to really kind of share some of this information, maybe share some of the Fishery February posts on your social media or talk to your friends about overfishing or bycatch or something like that. Like, um, yeah, kind of just spread that awareness. And if you do eat seafood, use February as a month to, to try and not eat it. Um, we're not telling people <clears throat> to never eat seafood again. That's not the, uh, that's not the idea of the campaign. We're just kind of using February as a little fun month, reduce your seafood for, for that war. Don't eat seafood for that month and then try and reduce your seafood going forward and be a bit more aware of where it's coming from. Try and find out how it was caught, um, what the method was, stuff like that. Um, what the species is, is that species endangered? Is it okay to eat? Um, is it more sustainable or not? So yeah, going forward after February, we ask people to um, reduce in general, um, replace seafood options with uh, plant-based options. And if you're not gonna do any of those, at least research, find out more about the seafood that you are eating. If you go to a restaurant, ask the waiter, how is this caught? Do you know where it was caught before you just order seafood off the menu with with no kind of knowledge of where it came from or what it is. Those are all really great tips. It kind of reminds me of the vibe of Meatless Mondays. Mm. And it also kind of reminds me of just trying to buy local and trying to understand where your things come from. I know that's a huge issue in the fishing industry is that it's really difficult to track the supply chain of where the fish you're eating actually came from. Which for me, I just know that I don't research, like I already have too many other things to research. <laughs> so for me, I'm just like, no, no, thank you. I'll just won't partake because it's so difficult to figure it out. But I know there are people that are working on enhancing the like supply chain traceability, transparency and all of that, which is like exciting because as we mentioned earlier, there are entire nations, communities, regions that eat seafood and rely on seafood, you know, for protein and all of that. Can you talk a little bit more about who your Fishery February campaign is targeted at communicating with? Sure. Um, so yeah, the mislabeling topic is, is something also that we, we do touch on with Fishery February. Um, just to go back on that. Um, <clears throat> yeah knowing where your seafood comes from is, is quite hard. And then a lot of the time there's, um, it can be accidental because there's a lot of different common names for things around the world, but it can also be on, done on purpose where seafood is sold under a name um, for a species that might be a higher value. So um, you think you're getting a more expensive fish, but what's actually the fillet is from a species that's a cheaper, easier fish to buy. Um, sometimes it's a completely different species and it's just incorrect labeling, like completely wrong. Um, sometimes it can be um, farmed, say salmon, uh, marketed as wild caught salmon. So kind of mislabeling in that sense in terms of how it was caught as well. So there's lots of issues around mislabeling, which does make it really hard when we're saying research and find out about where the seafood is coming from, but then you can't always take that labeling to be the truth, sadly. Um, so yeah, eating local, eating, um, eating stuff from around your area. If you, if you're happy, if you're lucky enough to, to live by the ocean and you can go down to your local fishmonger and you can buy from that person and it's a small scale fishery. Fantastic. That's probably a lot more sustainable than 
going to your big supermarket and buying stuff from large commercial um, fisheries, maybe somewhere else around the world. Um, but in terms of who this campaign's uh, targeted at, um, it's a global campaign. So we're not focused on any one country. It's not a UK centric campaign or a US centric campaign um, because the issues of uh, that we're discussing here, they are global. They happen all around the world. Um, but what we, who we are targeting is people who are in a position to, um, to make these choices. So we're not, we're not, this campaign is not about getting everyone around the world to stop eating seafood in February. There's a lot of rural communities and, and, um, third world nations who rely heavily on food for sustenance and to survive. This campaign's not for them. We're targeting kind of people who are in a, in a financial position to make these choices and to pick and choose what they're going to eat. Um, and often it's people in big cities who are very detached from the ocean and, and don't have a sort of second thought about any connection to what this actually, what the seafood is that they're eating and where that's actually come from. Um, so people in big cities who are kind of, yeah, I don't know, eating sushi for their lunch break three or four times a week or, or, or stuff like that. So that's who we're kind of targeting it at, but it's yeah, anyone around the world really. I can't, I really feel what you just said there because I used to live landlocked for most of my life and would also consume fish. And now <clears> that <throat> we live here in San Diego, it's actually kind of cool because there's two fish markets that are local and they have like a board and they tell you exactly when the fish was caught, how they caught it. They're going out on their own boats. Um, we kind of all know them personally and it's, just such a better feeling because I don't know the person in front of you was actively involved with catching it. And yeah, as you said, um, so much more sustainable. So yeah, there is ways to at least be more aware, but um, exactly just, especially when you're in a city and sushi, I mean, it's kind of like the food of the, of the century. I feel like everyone's constantly talking about sushi and it's like the best thing to eat. And nobody really thinks about like the amounts of fish that are consumed. Yeah. yeah that's... I mean, the, the the human population has kind of doubled in size in the last hundred years and the seafood consumption per capita has also doubled. So we've got twice as many people and everyone's eating twice as much seafood as like, is this, can this carry on going in the same direction? Personally, I don't think so. I think we need to start uh, reducing the amount of seafood we're eating. Yeah. Maybe you have it once or twice a week or a month or like really reduce the amount that you're eating. I don't think it should be something that you go out and you eat a platter of sushi which has salmon and tuna and prawn from flown around from all over the world every lunchtime like that that is not sustainable in my eyes um but yeah i mean i i, I work a lot over in the maldives doing research over there and um that's island nation they rely extremely heavily on tuna um and i have a lot of maldivian friends this campaign is not not for them there's there's not really the options to change their their diet to something completely different there's not much agriculture on the on in the Maldives so they're not they don't have a diversity of um, legumes or, or anything like that that they can get protein from so it's a very fish dependent country but there are still topics that, that we can talk about within the Maldives about the sustainability of how they're caught how the fish is caught and stuff like that so it's still a relevant campaign um in in the maldives but yeah perhaps not the stop eating seafood for the month of february part of it um just the kind of awareness and talking about these topics i think that's 
a really important distinction and I'm glad you outlined it like that because I feel like so much of the debates in the U.S. are about like who the burden falls on and this is about any climate issue but also related to conservation issues. Another thing I was thinking about is, which we don't need to break this down because I feel like it's a little controversial, but it's crazy how we put so much value on like the life of a shark or the life of a turtle, but then the life of a fish because it's like uglier I guess is just so much is worth less and I'm a hypocrite because I said I'm vegetarian but I still have milk so I'm not like a perfect person so I'm also criticizing myself but it is just crazy that we are like oh my god the turtles and the sharks and then for the fish we're like let's just go down the street and get those like chopped ones (laughs) yeah anyways it it is it is strange to think about that and yeah, I mean, they're, they're the bigger charismatic animals and stuff. And, and often in conservation, that's kind of the gateway to getting protection for these areas and stuff. If you can get people hooked on loving dolphins or loving turtles and wanting to protect them, that will often involve stopping negative impacts in the ocean, whether that's protecting an area or protecting a period. And uh, like as a result of that, you're then going to end up protecting the other fish and stuff that live in that area. But yes, it's very hard to to push for protection of cod or something like that. That's not a very <laughs> Those ugly little pretty guys. fish. And yeah, you're not going to, you're not going to have a cuddly toy cod or something like that, but a turtle or a shark or a, or a manta ray or something like that. That's a bit easier to kind of connect with and, and to, to feel the need to protect um, and then hopefully that can um, end up protecting the, the wider ocean environment as well. So I have a bit of a random question. I don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but we had a few people on the podcast and we were talking about diving in the Mediterranean and Lydia, Lydia and I are kind of like Mediterranean fans, but everyone's like, it's literally an empty pool because it's so overfished in like a surreal world in the future where fishing was banned from those areas could even places like the mediterranean recover and be like aquariums pretty much and full of fish or is it kind of (laughs) Lydia's just shaking her head she's like oh no um or i don't know i have like a hard time imagining what could happen if we would ban fishing in certain areas or if we maybe are past the point in some areas and it's kind of like hard to recover those yeah, I mean, that's a tricky question. And I don't know if anyone would have the like the truth and, and whether it would recover or not. Um, I would like to think that it would. Um, I mean, we've seen fish stocks and fish populations all around the world recover after fisheries has has stopped. Um, so I would I would assume so. The Mediterranean, it has some some aspects that are very like ecologically pretty cool um but yeah it's pretty void of fish in general but it's it's never going to go back to kind of well i don't think it ever was the same kind of level of biodiversity as as other areas around the world like in the golden triangle around indonesia philippines that sort of area where it's huge biodiversity tropical coral reefs and stuff like that you're not going to get that kind of same thing happening over in the mediterranean um, but yeah, hopefully the, the fish stocks would rebound um, if fishing was, was stopped. But um, would that ever happen? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> hopefully. But. 
It kind of reminds me of COVID, Sarah. That's why I was laughing because during COVID, um, I, a lot of people stopped. I just at traffic stopped and boat traffic stopped a little bit. I don't think fishing stopped, but a lot of places did recover. It reminded me of I'm not sure what they did in Lake Macquarie in Australia, but something became illegal. I don't know if it was fishing or just some type of human activity and now the sharks are there there's great white sharks mm. like back in the lake and that did not used to exist you know when my dad was a kid and now it's like if you're swimming in the lake just keep your eyes out so i think some places like there's hope i don't know remember covid like there was dolphins in the canals and stuff i don't know yeah <laughs> yeah and, and we see it with marine protected areas as well like um we get there's this whole thing about the spillover effect so if you protect an area say it's a an important area for certain species and that becomes a marine protected area and there's no fishing allowed in that area um the the fish populations rebound and they they're they're healthier and whatever um but that isn't confined to that set area those the fish move they, they don't know where that protected area is so they reproduce and there's more fish but then some of those fish start to swim out of the marine protected area and you get this spillover effect where there's now more fish around the marine protected area. So um, a lot of cases have found that, that fishing around marine protected areas has actually increased and the fishermen can catch more fish because they protected the certain area and they've given kind of a safe haven for these fish to, to spawn and to live and to grow. And then as a kind of uh, a spin-off effect of that, you get this spillover and you've got more fish in the surrounding area. So it's kind of a win-win situation. The, the, the fish and the environment has a, has a protected area and then the fishermen actually get more fish around the marine protected areas. It's great. Um, so yeah, we do see that with marine protected areas, but then like in the UK, we've got marine protected areas. I think it's about a third of the waters around the UK are, are designated marine protected areas. Sounds great. But all but one of those marine protected areas fishing there's trawl bottom trawling fishing going on so these are boats that are dragging massive nets along the seabed and just trawling and scraping up everything on the seafloor and it's like how how can that be allowed in a marine, marine protected area surely that's counterintuitive you're you've got lots of bycatch you're obviously catching the target species you're damaging whatever's living on the seafloor the kind of the ecosystem down there and it's it's turning over the the sediment, the sand, and the the mud on the seafloor, and that's um, releasing carbon dioxide as well. So there's all sorts of issues with that, and it just seems absolutely nuts that we can say, right, these are marine protected areas, but you're allowed to go in there and and do trawl fishing. It's it seems completely bizarre to me. Yeah, that is so interesting. I. I mean, I don't know the definition of marine protected area, but I would have assumed that. It, fishing would not be allowed but is there such thing as like a universal rule what that term means or can like every country kind of issue it like I don't know with the ocean sometimes I got a little confused anyways because it's not like not all ocean land is assigned to a government right so it's a lot of like who has to say what's happening in parts of the ocean is it's just a confusing concept <laughs> Yeah, so basically each country has um, jurisdiction over their national waters, which is within 12 nautical miles, um, or their EEZ, they can kind of, they have control over. Um, in terms of what's a marine protected area, it does vary completely. Um, 
uh yeah i mean and a lot of them they will ban fishing or some types of fishing maybe no net fishing is allowed you're only allowed to do pole and line fishing or no commercial fishing but recreational fishing is allowed so you're allowed to go out on your weekend with a with a pole and maybe it's only catch and release so anything you catch you have to release back into the water alive you're not allowed to take it home with you um but then it it, it goes beyond the kind of um the the fishing world as well it, it can also go into the recreational side so maybe snorkeling and diving is not allowed maybe some areas maybe literally boats aren't even allowed like you're not allowed a motorboat you can only go in on a paddleboard or a kayak or something like that um so it really depends on on each marine protected area um around the world but yeah i i i agree i would have thought the first thing you ban is uh commercial trawl fishing but um hey that's uk marine protected areas for you that's so interesting because we live somewhat close to a marine protected area it's it's fairly small but no boats are allowed you can't go fishing it's like super strict and the wildlife is absolutely thriving but in my head that was just like oh all marine protected areas must be exactly like this one in front of me which we just learned apparently is not <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there has to be a trade-off. There has to be yeah. there has to be the benefits for the environment, but then the coastal community and the the, the humans who who live in that area have to still be able to. I mean, it's probably a livelihood for them, so they have to be able mm -hmm. to make money somehow, whether yeah. that's through tourism and recreation or through fishing or, or something. That you need to find a balance. You can't just say, right, nobody's ever allowed in this marine protected area ever again because it's just for the fish. It's like there has to be. A kind of a middle ground where yeah. humans can use it uh, a little so bit true. as well especially also i mean there's there's a few areas that are like way way bigger in size over here it's almost just like mm. a little lake situation one last thing i want to touch on is the amount of plastic inside of fish because i feel like that is a growing area of concern that there's very little research on in terms of how it's affecting us but as time goes on we know there's plastic in the ocean if this is news to you check out some of our other episodes. <laughs> but there's a lot of plastic in the ocean and the fish are eating it and it's going all over the the food chain and all of this and then we're eating it. And it's, you know, it's in our bloodstreams and all of this. I guess it's not even I don't even know what to ask. What do you think about that? Like what why what where do, where do you see the future, I guess, of fish free February and the eat less fish movement going? That is my question. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, you've got you've got the issue of <clears throat> of plastics, and and yeah, definitely, there's there's plastic all over the marine environment, from the deepest parts of the ocean up to the surface, on coral reefs, mangroves, wherever you look in the ocean, you'll find plastic. It's it's a very sad situation, um, and yeah, all that plastic is breaking down and entering the food web through zooplankton, which is then getting eaten by small fish, and and so on, so on, and then even large animals whales and turtles are are eating bigger bigger bits of plastic because it looks like um jellyfish or, or whatever um is that entering us when we eat that seafood yes probably um what the impacts of that i have very little idea it's not an area that i have much experience on um is it going to be good for us probably not is it going to be yeah. negative if anything, it's probably going to be detrimental, yes. Um, but then, yeah, you've got the plastics, but at the same time, you've also got lots of other stuff uh, like toxins and heavy metals and, and pollutants, which 
like farm farming industry which is also agriculture like um farming for for um carrots or potatoes or whatever like that um you get a lot of runoff into the ocean and lots of chemicals going into the rivers from industries and then that ends up in the ocean you get all these heavy metals and stuff in the ocean that's picked up by small animals which are then eaten by bigger animals and you get bio bio accumulation up the food web so the larger the animal they've been eating lots of smaller animals that have been eating lots of smaller animals which all have a little bit of um, heavy metals or whatever in it and by the time you get to the large tuna or the large sharks there's quite high levels of things like arsenic in the in the meat of these animals and that can be very poisonous or quite toxic um so that's also another big concern of eating these like large fish like tuna or shark and i mean not many people eat shark but but some countries do they're at the top of the food food chain um and they've built up a, a lot of these kind of heavy metals and i guess it's maybe similar for plastics um so yeah like seafood's often uh marketed as kind of a really healthy option but there there are instances where seafood can actually be bad for you if you're eating large quantities of it so again it's something you just kind of got to be aware of with the the health implications um but yeah the, the plastic side of it i think is is quite a new science as well like how's that going to affect us um affecting hormone levels in people and stuff like that um yeah it's just something i i don't know a whole lot about myself totally i think they're still figuring it out as we speak and it's going to yeah. be really interesting to see scary yeah a lot of scary stuff well it's incredible that you started this whole thing and um yeah i'm always just it's probably so much work to get this campaign going and just to do something like this out of your passion for the ocean and for protecting fish is just awesome um i want to know what else are you working on because i think i've seen something about manta rays is that correct i just want a tiny little manta ray story time to close this which honestly maybe works well with our we always have a final question and maybe we can combine those two which is what was your favorite ocean story or ocean memory ever maybe it's a manta ray one maybe not we'll see where this goes <laughs> good question I'm, I'm i've had a, a lot of very cool interactions in the water i've been kind of very lucky in that sense um i currently i'm working as a an underwater cameraman as my kind of full-time job um but i also still the the last few years i was working with the manta trust um especially in the maldives um for about three and a half years uh studying um studying the manta ray population over there so that's kind of where i started my marine biology marine conservation career was with manta rays um and i still study the oceanic manta population over in the maldives uh, especially around a small island called formula in the south of the country um very famous for their tiger shark um aggregations but there's also a lot of oceanic mantas which is what i'm focused on um so yeah i'm kind of heading up a research project with that also doing a lot of underwater filmmaking and then uh also trying to run fish free february um getting a lot of help from from uh, a, a small team as well to run that um because i've got, I've got a fair bit on my plate these days um in terms of best underwater encounter i think one of them is probably is probably with manta rays um 
there's a small little marine protected area in the sort of central north of the Maldives called Hanif Arut Bay. And it's the area where um, we get the largest aggregations of reef manta rays anywhere in the world. Um, reef manta rays, they grow up to about three meters, maybe just over three meters wingspan, so 10 feet. So quite big animals, the size of a car kind of thing. Um, and we can get up to 200, 250 of these animals feeding in a small area, the area of kind of the size of a, a football field or something like that. Um, so one of my best experiences was a day where we had, yeah, I think it was probably close to 200 mantas feeding in the bay. Um, but we also had three whale sharks come in and feed at the same time alongside all the manta rays. And then what was really cool for me studying the oceanic mantas, we had uh, one oceanic manta come into, <clears throat> into the bay as well um, and feed with them. And what was really cool is you had all the reef manta rays very close together and, and feeding as a group. But then the oceanic manta ray was off to the side and it, these species look very similar. Like you, a lot of people confuse them, but this animal clearly wasn't connected to the rest of, like it was feeding separately. And it was just super interesting to see that the sort of cooperative feeding of the reef mantas and then such a similar species knowing that it kind of wasn't part of that group and feeding separately by itself and, and kind of keeping away from the group. Um, really, really, really cool. Um, yeah, so to have all of that happen on one day was, uh, was a pretty wild experience. Can I ask, like, why mantas? Um, or how, how that happened for you? Uh, so I started off um, in the Philippines after university, working for a conservation organization over there, um, studying whale sharks. Um, and it was just kind of the first opportunity that came up, um, straight out of uni, you kind of jump at whatever is, is presented. Um, I knew I wanted to be somewhere warm. Um, I don't really like the cold water. Uh, I wanted to study big sharks, big rays, something like that. Um, so it started off as whale sharks. Uh, and then, um, the Manta Trust also had a, an internship project over in the Maldives. So I applied to that and I got it. Um, so I moved over there and then it was kind of just, yeah, opportunities fell into place. I, the end of the internship, a paid position came up and I was offered that. So I took that. Um, so I stayed for a couple more years. Then I moved, I did a lot of underwater photography already. So I moved on to do the, the media, uh, media and communications manager role for the wider Manta Trust charity, which has a lot of affiliate projects all around the world. Um, so yeah, I've always wanted to kind of tie in conservation, science and research, but also media, filmmaking, photography, stuff like that. Um, and with mantas, uh, they're just, they're pretty cool. If I compare a manta to a whale shark, whale sharks don't really do much. They kind of swim around, they might stop to feed for a little bit, but that's about it. They're quite, they're quite boring. Um, there's a lot of super interesting questions that we don't know about them, which is fascinating. Like where do they give birth, all sorts of stuff about their reproductive side. Um, which is fascinating, but actually seeing whale sharks in the water, it's the same thing every time. They're just kind of swimming around. Um, whereas manta rays, they've got a lot more going on They They stop at cleaning stations. They have a variety of different feeding, um, strategies. They do flips. They feed by themselves on the surface, down on the bottom, on their side, they feed in groups. They, they make chains, they make, uh, cyclones. There's, there's all sorts of different stuff. Um, and yeah, it just seems to be a bit more going on with, with manta rays. 
So really, really cool to be in the water with. Who would have thought that mandarins are up to all those things? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, we've had a few shark ecologists, shark researchers, but I think you're our first manta researcher. Yeah, maybe so. we have to have a manta episode. Maybe we'll have to bring you back on one day and make it all about I know, mantas. I'm sitting, I'm like, cleaning stations? <laughs> what, what? Like, feeding? What's... But anyways, yeah. I digress. Well, I, can put, I can put you on t- in touch with someone from the manta trust, and I'm so, sure someone would love to jump on and oh, talk all things mantas that. with you as well. Amazing. Well, thank you so so much for coming on and coming on so spontaneously um we are really excited that we made this happen this february i can't say this word one more time um and yeah just thank you thank you for all the work you do and we'll make sure to well that's lydia's part the show notes you go ahead and (laughs) and do the show note part if you're listening to this i hope you are inspired to do the rest of your February fish free, okay? It's not even that hard. You get a free pass to do only two weeks because that's when this episode is coming out. There's just so many different reasons. Like if you care about plastics, if you care about animals, if you care about health, like it doesn't really matter. There's a different angle for everyone. So I hope that it was intriguing and interesting to you. And thank you super much, Simon, for coming on. And woo, fish free February. And yes, we will include, we will include all of the information that if you want to learn more in the show notes perfect thank you so much both of you for having me thanks for joining us for another episode of ocean stories if you'd like to follow along on instagram you can find us at ocean stories underscore podcast for updates and behind the scenes we'll also be sharing our ocean adventures on youtube at ocean stories podcast If you like this episode, please show your support by leaving a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Join us next Tuesday for more Ocean Stories.